You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Good afternoon. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to be talking with Victoria Chang via technology. Victoria, thanks for joining. Oh, it's such a pleasure. Where are you talking from? From the LA area, so Los Angeles on the west side. Oh, ex- excellent. So, what's the West Coast like these days? It's, uh, you know, it. The weather is the same as usual, but there's a there. You know, there are a lot of things happening. Obviously, um, in in California, but also around the world. So it feels oddly similar yet very different. How how are you coping? How are things with you during these these days of COVID? You know, I think I'm a pretty good coper, to be honest. And so um, I think I have a lot of training as a coper. So I, I, I think I'm coping as well as can be, actually. And so I think, uh, and I'm, I'm kind of an optimist by nature. So uh, that may not come across in my writing, but I definitely am an optimist by nature as a person. So I tend to look forward and, and uh, think about all the good things that, that I have or that are happening or the fact that I'm alive, for example, um, is always a good thing to think about when I wake up in the morning. Yes, I, I know what you mean, Victoria. Sometimes I even will um, take a deep breath or a few breaths in a row, uh, and I'm not naturally a meditator. I've got to try to get back to some kind of practice, but even just doing that, like just say thanks for being able to take a breath. Uh, and coping, I think we're going to be talking about that quite a bit, some mm-hmm. of the subject matter for Obit. I think, is that what you were f- referring to when you said you've had a lot of practice with coping? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. My and, and just also, I think, practice coping, but also watching other people cope, you know, through their own challenges, which were always worse than mine. So to, to be an observer and, and a sister of someone else that has a situation that's way more dire than your own is a, is a very useful wake-up call in terms of gratitude. Um, and yeah, my dad is still alive, but he has no capacity to understand anything and hasn't for a long, long time. So, uh, but, but it, it's changed over time. So he still, um, initially he was better. Like he had more awareness and, and for a long time he, ha- he doesn't have that much awareness, but you can still sense that even if people are sort of empty shells, there's still something there. And, and I think to myself, well, I mean, it could always be worse. Like, you know, I, I just take care of my dad, but I don't have to be my dad. So that's sort of, <laughs> What I mean by coping, it's always worse. Something can always be way worse than it is, is how I how I always think about things. Oh, I'm sorry that I made the mistake and understood him 
to have died. Oh, that's okay. You know, people make that mistake all the time because, I mean, in many ways, he to me, he did die in some ways, you know, tw- like 12 years ago. So I, I don't really think of him as being alive or the former father figure that I've known my whole life is dead. And this new father figure is still here, but it's not anyone that I used to know. I will read your short bio in the back of Obit out with Copper Canyon Press. Victoria Chang's prior books are Barbie Chang, The Boss, Salvinia Molesta, and Circle. Her children's picture book, Is Mommy, was illustrated by Marla Frizee and published by Beach Lane Books, Simon & Schuster. It was named a notable book by the New York Times. Her middle grade novel, Love, Love, was published by Sterling Publishing. She has received a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Sustainable Arts Foundation Fellowship, the Poetry Society of America's Alice Faye D. Castagnola Award, a Pushcart Prize, a Lannan Residency Fellowship, and a McDowell Colony Fellowship. She lives in Los Angeles and is the program chair of Antioch's Low Residency MFA program. And Victoria Chang still has two wiener dogs. Is that right? That's right. <laughs> and are they mustard and ketchup? They are indeed. <laughs> how, did, how did they come into your life, Victoria? I've always wanted wiener dogs. I, I don't know. I think um, when my when I was little, my mom took us to a, a wiener dog uh, breeder, I think. Um, and I think it was just to go go look at them. But I think it was a tease. And so we just were there to pet them and say hi. And since then, I think she wanted to get some wiener dogs, but I think um, my dad hated dogs, and so we never were able to get them. And for some reason, that's just a visual image that has stuck into my head. And so I vowed that when I was older and I was able to, you know, have dogs because of a scheduling and you know, just it's hard to have dogs. You know, it's it's hard to fit them into your life. When I finally could have dogs, I said, I'm going to get some wiener dogs. And, and so um, rescuing wiener dogs was not an option because we had um, small kids and I was afraid that they were going to bite, you know, cause they can be a little bit feisty. And so we did end up getting two wiener dogs um, and they're mustard and ketchup and they are loads of fun. Yeah. How old are they now? Uh, mustard and ketchup are, I think, uh, seven almost seven and five six and four seven five almost yeah those are good ages yeah (laughs) victoria you didn't know that you were gonna i thought this we were gonna talk about poems and writing um in secret living writers is actually just about dogs dogs. that's right no i'm happy to talk about mustard and ketchup all day in fact they're so funny so I hope you send the photos with you yeah. and, the, and the pups because that would that would be great. But we have got a lot to talk about. And I've got your your beautiful book, Obit, on the table here and also Barbie Chang. So we've got both of these books um, out with Copper Canyon Press. And thanks to Laura at Copper Canyon for sending them my way. You and your poems since 2005. Crazy. When taking a class with Larry Goldstein. Oh, yeah. And I know I'm talking with a fellow Wolverine, so that's why. <laughs> Go blue. I was just talking to a college friend um, via email today, and we're just all we do is talk about how much we loved Michigan, so, <laughs> and how we have so many good memories of our time at the University of Michigan. So I am a huge 
Wolverine fan, and I love that school. Toria, when you were here, were you writing poems? Were you... What was I doing there? Yeah, I was, you know, I was pretty much doing what a lot of lost undergrads do, and I was exploring my options. And so every term I took a creative writing class. So I had... Um, a class with Larry Goldstein. I took a class with Alice Fulton. I mean, I, I took a creative writing or poetry class every single semester I was there. And uh, so, but I didn't really know that one could have a life as a writer, if that makes sense, since my parents were both on the technical side of things. So my mother was a, um, she was a teacher, but her degree was in math degrees she has multiple degrees in math and uh my father was an engineer and was uh his has a phd in mechanical engineering so and they're immigrants and it's not as if they had a lot of english books around the house and knew anyone that was a writer so i didn't really know that one could actually desire to be a writer i just thought you just wrote which is all I pretty much did. So yeah, that's what I did at Michigan. I was dabbling everywhere. And even pre-Michigan, would you say, like when you were a kid, were you also writing, even though there weren't books, you know, sitting around the house, English books? Yeah, yeah, because people taught us in school. And so I started to know what a poem was in elementary school because they were making us write poems in elementary school. Otherwise, I wouldn't know what a poem was. Um, So... Yeah, I just went to some, you know, a big public school system in Michigan, and that's where I was introduced to poetry. And then I had, um, I went to West Bloomfield High School, which is a very good public high school. And the English teachers there were phenomenal. You know, I had uh, Mrs. Ruth Lineweber and Mr. Um, Jim Corcoran were two of the teachers that I remember the most, and they were my English teachers. They made us, Miss, Mrs. Lineweber made us memorize um, Emily Dickinson poems, and uh, Mr. Corcoran used to read us um, novels and short stories aloud every class. And so he'd stand in the front and read, read just read to us. And um, so I think this just, you know, the, I can tell that like they really loved what they were teaching. I don't know if they loved teaching because I think teaching can be really hard. High school kids um, at a, such a large school, but I, I definitely could sense hundred and eighty percent that they loved what they were teaching and they believed in what they were teaching. So that was all I had. And so when I got to college, I started. Um, basically started taking more classes in writing because they had gotten us into writing too. And it sounds like they also gave you belief in it, belief in the writing. Oh yeah, that it was important. Yeah, reading and writing were important somehow. Let's, Victoria, let's talk about your latest book of poems and and how they came to be. It's called Obit and I love the forms in here, the visual, their sections of the book, and how you play with this idea of the obituary as a form and make it make it your own. Can you talk a little bit about how how this started? Yeah, I mean, I think it's funny looking back. It's always hard to remember how things start because it's not. I don't know. Maybe some people do this, but for me, I'm always 
thinking of things, right? I think most people are, but I'm, I'm particularly an active thinker. And so um, I have 12,000 ideas in one day about everything. And so I, I had to really, when people started asking me that question was like, how did this come about? I actually had to really think hard um, about how these poems came to be because it's just, you know, for me, these poems are one of a thousand things that come to be in, in my daily life, um, just because of the nature of my personality. And so if I, if I remembered correctly, I just, you know, I do remember sitting in a car and I remember listening to NPR and I remember listening to a documentary on, uh, this, the documentary film Obit. Um, and it was a documentary, documentary film all about obituary writers and fast. I learned so much just in that short time listening to the episode on NPR. And I don't know what happened, but you know, in, in uh, the writing process or creativity, something happened with that word, obit, just stuck. And I went home and um, basically wrote over the next two weeks, like 70 of these obituaries. And I don't really remember much of it because it was so fast. And and um, I think it had been August, like maybe nine months after my mother had passed away. And I had sworn that I would never write any poems related to my mother's death. And so I was surprised that these poems came out and, um, and I didn't really want to spend any time thinking about it. So I just let them continue coming out as they came out until I stopped, which was two weeks later. And then I spent years revising them, et cetera, you know, things that writers do. Yeah. Well, that's, that's kind of amazing that two weeks is that part of your process, Victoria, where are you often writing in sort of these intense periods and then not writing, but doing other things as an active thinker? Or is it something as part of your process, you are always writing almost daily if you can? I, you know, I wish I could write daily. I just don't have the time. Um, yeah. And so I'm, I'm so busy. It's unbelievable how many emails that I get. And I think... Uh, everyone gets a lot of emails, but I'm I'm pretty mortified on a daily basis how many emails that I get and how many people that I need to respond to. Um, and so I I don't really I don't feel like I'm in the right mindset. I think that I think that if I had more time, I would be a different kind of writer. So um, you know, if any, anyone wants to accuse me of anything, it's, it, they can accuse they they definitely can accuse me of a process that I I've sort of write in bursts. Um, because I just, you know, I, do, I haven't created enough space in my life to, to be a writer and to be a, a real thinker. And I'm always rushed. I'm always running around. There's never enough time. I'm always missing something or late to something. And so um, I've always got this massive to-do list, you know, that's, I have one right now from a meeting I was just in. I've got 12 things to do that are each going to take enormous amounts of time. And so I think the way that I write is not you know, it's, it's not ideal, but it is what it is. And I don't really know how to change it. Um, and I'm trying to figure out how to change it. I'm, you know, at this age and having done this this long, I'm trying to figure out how I should change. I need to, like, I'm, I'm like Roka, you know, it's like our archaic torso of Apollo. You must change your life. I actually am constantly feeling that I must change my life. And I honestly think I've always felt like that last line was speaking directly to me. And so, um, I have a habit of taking on too much and doing too much and doing things that no one asks me to do because it's the right thing to do, which then puts uh, on my plate a tremendous amount of things. And I think that it can be a problem for my writing, but 
the result is, you know, the process is, is very burst-y, if that makes sense. And, uh, and then the rest of the time I, I do spend, I like editing and revising because it's, it feels easier to me, um, but it's still, it's still hard. Let's talk about that, Victoria, because I could hear even when you first said it a couple of minutes ago about revising, your voice, you sounded almost, you loved it. I love it. <laughs> You had that two weeks of intense um, generating material, and then it seemed like you always had something that you could go to and go into. Yeah, it's it's it also is like I think it's also kind of this um, form of anxiety. So I think that uh, I don't allow myself to stop, or I just keep going and going and going because I feel like if I stop, I'm going to screw something up, and so. I just keep going, 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 and then get it all out as fast as possible kind of thing. And then I can, okay, then I have, I have something that I can work on for the next two years or three years or however long it takes me to work on something and not worry about things, you know, not worry about creativity. Because I think, I think, um, I think I worry about creativity. You know, I think I worry about the fact that I spend 99% of my day not being creative, you know, it's answering emails. That's pretty much my job description. And so I do, uh, I do feel like it's, it's when I write, it's like I write with in the, the intensity of someone that feels like they, they won't ever get to write again. Victoria, I under, I understand what you're saying. And I, I, I think that, that, that I admire this way of working and also this, this tenacity I mean, you're saying, I don't, I need to change my life, <laughs> you know, this, I feel you are still making sure that this part of you is alive. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think writers would probably, artists would say this, that if they didn't do the, those things, it's like, they're not breathing. And so I think for, for creative people, the create creating is is air and it's like if you're not doing it then you might as well be suffocating to death and so i think that for me um i will carve out that time to revise is which is i which is what i spend most of my time doing which you know does involve a fair amount of rewriting right but there's just not as much pressure like creating something from scratch and from from a totally clean slate i think it's just it puts a lot of pressure on me um and so I have to be in the right mindset and it has to, I have to be called to it. You know, I'm not a daily practitioner. I, I need to be called to write something. And I think that, um, I would love to get into the practice of just saying here, write, write something and, and, and just write a poem or write something or do something. But I just, I don't know how to do that right now. And I, and I do think it's because I'm, I'm too busy. And so I, t I tend to write in sequences and series because of, of that as well. And I think, um, you know, sometimes I think that people can criticize, mm. criticize these kinds of this way of writing or the series or the sequences, or I, I, I see that sort of implied occasionally on Twitter. Well, I don't know if they're criticizing me. Like, I don't think they're criticizing me, but I think sometimes people, sometimes people denigrate what they quote unquote call the project book. And I've talked about this in the past and I feel like, no, no, the project book doesn't mean you sit down and you write a project. It's actually extremely organic. And so I think people are misunderstanding how, how obsessions form. And I think for, uh, I think that people naturally assume that if the, the result is something that looks like it was, um, 
you know, it looks like it was written all at once or something like that, then they'll kind of denigrate it and call it a project book and think that there wasn't any discovery along the way. You know, that's, that's what I feel sometimes. I feel like sometimes people attack the project book. They'll say, oh, you know, for the last 10 years, we've been in an, you know, an influx in our time of rampant project books, but, and then they'll say, but this book, you know, it'll be, it'll be some review or something. This book defies that, which then implies that there's something bad about books that are in series and sequences, which I absolutely do not believe that to be true. And I also think that um, if people think that, or when they sort of imply that, I think they're being sexist <laughs> because I think a lot of, a lot of women or parents, for example, um, you don't have the time like you used to. And so I changed my writing habits after I had a, one child. I just couldn't, you write when you have time and you don't, you know, it's not like, it's not a luxury anymore. And so I think I, I always find myself to be ever so slightly defensive when I when I sense that people are denigrating um, books like Obit or Barbie Chang or The Boss or you know things that that are all kind of more uniform you know I hadn't actually been aware of that Victoria but sometimes I try to keep away from some of the reviews or critiques I don't know why but I do just rather finding the books and reading them but that's interesting yeah, I mean, I think you you also are in the time that you are. So acknowledging the period of time in which you're alive for, which is actually really short. Let's say you live a full eighty five years. That's a short life in the in the in the scheme of the literary world and movements and time periods. That's not a lot of time. It's not like you've been writing for eighty five years as well. So, so you know, it's it's a tiny, tiny, tiny little chunk of time you're on this earth. And so, write what you write. You know, if you're going to write, you know, a uh, hundred poems and you're going to toss them in the air and order them how you pick them up so be it. And if there's no connection between any of them, there's no string, no connective tissue, fine. If there is, fine. Like to me, it's like, I, that's just sort of how I, I think because I've written in different ways my whole life, just depending on my context and what I'm able to do. And so I, you know, I try not to judge other people, but I feel like in many ways, it's the job of the critic to judge. And so I do like to read reviews and I do like to kind of sense where people's ideas and thinking are at that particular moment in time that I'm alive. And, and so, um, but I, you know, I, I don't not, none of that changes the way that I am or the way that I write. I just do what I do and I don't really care what other people think in the end. I, to be honest. Well, it also sounds in part that it's a compulsion. Like you say, when you're making, when you're generating the, the creativity of the, the poems, it's, it's a call it's a call, it's a call to action, a compulsion almost. Absolutely. Yeah. So then that, that's the thing when you're making, when other things just fall away. Right. Right. And so you just do what calls you and that could be different at different times of your life. And uh, for various different reasons. Probably and will so, be. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like, do, do did I want to write about my mother's death and, and illness? No. Did I want her to die or be sick for so long? Of course not. But that's the, that's what was given to me. And so that is what my fate is. And that is what is. And so I just go where, where my life takes me, if that makes sense. It does. It does. Could you read a poem? Could you read from Obit? 
Sure. Is there any one you want me to read, or do you want me to read just pick one? I, I want to hear what you'd like to read. Okay, because then that I was just sort of open to a random page. <laughs> okay, I will read. Um, I will just read. I like reading this one about my mother's teeth, but I think I read that one all the time. Maybe I'll see if I could find one that I don't read that often. Is that why the the book fell open to that page, perhaps? <laughs> yeah, probably. I you know I just read the same poems over and over and over again, and. Um, Maybe I'll read, uh, since we're talking about the obit, the obit, the documentary, I'll read the obituary writer. Let's see if I want to read this one. Okay, I'll read this one. The obituary writer can die before the subject. John Wilson died in 2002 before the publication of his obituary on band leader Artie Shaw, who died in 2004. What if I die before my father? I've written his obituary in my head every day since his stroke. My father's brain has died before him. It was surrounded by his beloved skull. What if the hinges on his skull break and the brain falls out? Do I give it back or toss it? What if we call the waiter over and God comes instead? Do we offer him a seat and a brandy or do we cover our eyes and hope he doesn't see us? My mother spent years knowing she would die, but in her last days she had no idea. To suffer for so long with knowledge, but not to finish what was known. Why do I need her to know in her last moments, like the people who died in the Oakland warehouse fire, crawling on the floor, trying to sort between a battered organ and a door, between a staircase and a shadow? Death isn't the enemy. Knowledge of death is the enemy. Thanks, Victoria. Sometimes for famous people, um, their obituaries are long written before they've died. And so I, I just, and I was just uh, interviewed by a, a New York Times Magazine writer who um, has a column called Tip, How to Write an Obituary. And we were talking about this, so maybe that was why it was sort of fresh in my mind. Her name is Malia Wolin, and she has a whole column on the New York Times Magazine called Tip, and it's like how to blank, 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 blank. But it's never just how to. It's really obviously about, it's usually about something much larger. Like, you know, I think good good writing is always about something much larger, but, but uh, you know, the, ostensibly, the, the the pieces are how-to pieces, but they they never really are just about that. And so, was your conversation with her also about grief and loss? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think. I mean, some of the interesting things we talked about was how um, an obituary isn't really about documenting someone's death; it's about celebrating someone's life. Um, something else we talked about was how, uh, or we discovered while we were talking, I think along the way, was that, so when someone else dies, it is very much so a reminder for the the living to live um, and that you are still here and your time is coming. And so for me, when my mother died, it was a huge wake up call. And um, I suddenly realized that I was gonna die too. So uh, that we talked about things like that. It was a fascinating conversation. And this is all in the book as well, in mm-hmm. Obit, as you're reading through the poems. 
these discoveries are are in these obits and in and in the other forms or poems that you also that also are part of obit uh, let's talk about the the tankas victoria yeah. would you mind because how how did these become part of the voice of obit yeah so i think i finished these at least finished 70 of these or so and um just started working on them and editing them and you know just it, it, I mean, years. Uh, but at some point within that time period, I started writing new poems. I'm not sure why, but uh, I think I just started writing. I thought, oh, my, let me just exercise some poem writing muscles because usually for me, it's been like three years, right? Before I've ever, I've, I mean, I could have rewritten a line or sections of a poem, but in terms of creating something brand new out of the air is not something that I do very often. Um, like I could not remember the last time I wrote a poem right now, but um, it's been so long. It, usually it's like a year, two years, three years, that kind of thing. So I think I was writing sonnets and Sistinas and um, guzzles, tankas, you know, just practicing. And um just see if I could do it because I wasn't sure if I could write poems anymore kind of thing. And so, um, yeah, I wrote these tankas and I, and I just threw them all in the back of this manuscript. And my friend, um, the poet Ilya Kaminsky, who um, is always, yeah, everyone knows Ilya. He's always reading stuff of mine generously. Um, and so he told me that the poems and the, those formal poems, and they don't, they're, they don't really belong in this manuscript. They're not that strong, but I like these tankas and I think you should, uh, but I don't understand why they're all together. I think you should pull them apart and then sprinkle them throughout the manuscript. And so I somehow put them in pairs and I don't remember why, but they seem like they wanted to be in twos. And then I kind of read um, the manuscript that I had and then felt like whenever I needed a break as a reader, I just put a set of tankas in there. And, you know, looking at them now, I think the tankas, in retrospect, I didn't, I don't know if I quite realized it at the time as I was doing it, but now obviously I do, but they're, they're to children. So uh, I think sort of intuitively it became this interesting um, tension between, which I talk about in the book, you know, helping someone die, but then you've got these really small kids that you actually have to help grow. And so to be on both sides of that stick, if that makes sense, um, the cycle of life was just really, really confusing. <laughs> and it was hard to bounce back and forth constantly between the two and be expected to be, you know, really uh, perfect for each, each set of people, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. Ready for what was needed for each of those those moments. That's um, right. Coping is what we started talking about. I, I became really good at coping, so <laughs> adjusting. And and moving and also keeping keeping moving with that. You almost I don't know, it's almost as if you forget in some ways how to have your own thoughts. So I think in a way it these writing these poems, whether it was the Tonkas while you were revising Obit the Obits, the Obit poems it was a way of also knowing that you still had your own mind in a way. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I mean, I think that for people like me, I just think that there are periods in your life where you just are always giving things to others. And I think that writing is always something that I thought 
could be my my own thing for myself and um so that i've always made sure that i tried to squeeze in as much of that as possible but it's a constant constant struggle and i think that a lot of people probably feel similarly yeah i under i understand <laughs> i understand <laughs> um, victoria would you read the tankas sure um let's see i'll just read i'll read this one I, I don't know if i've ever read this one this one on page 89 aloud so there are two on each page so i'll just read these two i put on a shirt put on a pair of work pants because i will die how the snow falls to its death how snow is just dressed up rain where do they find hope sometimes the city has pleats sometimes the body rings with joy shaped like violets sometimes the night wind tingles thanks victoria so with the tanka with the, the form how did you find it was it something about because i know you said you were also trying out other forms like the sonnet or a guzzle or but but this one why do you think the spareness of the syllabic form might have appealed hey you know i actually don't remember why i started writing tankas i mean obviously i i knew what haikus were but i i've always associated haikus with like elementary school when we had to write them and they always feel really short to me. So I've never spent a lot of time writing haikus. Um, but I think, I think that, I think when I learned about the tanka, which is a long time ago, actually, I mean, plenty of people have written tankas. Um, but I don't know. I think, I think that it just felt kind of fun to write something longer, but still have the concision precision and the tightness of a haiku. And so, you know, these are 57577 with 31 syllables. It gave me just enough space to, to breathe. Um, and I loved them so much that I actually wrote a whole nother book <laughs> of uh, short poems, but not all tankas. So I, I did a bunch of research and found a whole bunch of other short poems that are all in syllabics. And um, I just, I love writing these short, I mean, actually, let me rephrase that. I didn't love writing them because it was so hard. Um, writing the obits were way more enjoyable because it felt like a very loose process and there's there are no restrictions. And in fact, there are no line break restrictions. It was just writing a prose poem was very freeing. But writing the tankas was really hard. And I had to keep rewriting the whole thing again and again and again because it didn't work because it didn't fit in the syllables. And so I actually found it to be really challenging. And I think... Um, Again, you know, Ilya told me, hey, I really loved your short poems in this book, Obit. I think you you seem to like them and, you, you know, you, you seem like you're decent at the short poems. So why don't you write a whole book? I think you should write a whole book of, of short poems. 40 pages, he said. And so uh, he doesn't remember saying this to me because, you know, he's I think I've said this before in another interview, but he's. He's like a little entrepreneur, you know, always 20 ideas in one half hour conversation. But I remembered it. And so I did write. I said, OK, well, let me let me get back to writing. And so I wrote a whole book of short poems. <laughs> so is that what you're currently doing? Or it sounds like it's in it's done already. Yeah, it's it's sort of like it's done-ish, you know, it's like it's kind of like I'm I'm like, OK, with it, with where, where it's at. But I I, I keep um going back and forth between these two manuscripts that I'm working on. And one is a book of 
hybrid kind of prose with some visual really bad visual art and then the other is a short a book of short poems and so I go back and forth right right now at this moment I'm working on the last prose essay in that book of hybrid whatever's because it's coming out this year in the fall and so I I need to I, I really needed to focus on that and then occasionally I'll jump I'll switch gears if I'm too familiar with the language in something I'm working on, then I can't, then it's just, it's useless, right? You, you, you just read it a hundred times in the last week or something. You have to switch gears. Now I'll switch to the other one, which are the short poems. And then I'm like, oh, wow, this is really bad. I can't believe this makes no sense. And then I'll the redo the whole thing kind of thing. So I just jump, I've been jumping back and forth for a while now. But um, yeah, I wrote, I can't even remember when I wrote those two, but I think I wrote the prose manuscript maybe, I don't know what years, 2020, 2020, 2019, maybe. And then the short poems, it was just sort of like, oh, when, when Ilya said that, I was like, sure. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll do Ilya's assignment. And it became, <laughs> you know, I wrote a hundred pages though. So, um, but yeah, but they're so short. I mean, it, it doesn't mean it was easy. Short is not easy. It was so hard and I'm still struggling. Like I keep making changes and editing and that, but I wrote it, I think during the pandemic, I wrote it in March, started in February, March, April, May, June. So maybe three or four months, I wrote about a hundred pages. Yeah. Do you have any there in front of you, Victoria, that you could, you could <laughs> read? Do. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, they're of varying lengths. So, um, sorry, there's all this noise in the background. I could tell them to be quiet, but they won't listen. And someone's painting in here. So uh, let's see. I will read one. I'll, so they're also two on the same page. Um, so these were in the Yale Review. So th these, these are two, two that are together. This one's called, so they're two. So they have titles. Oh, and they're, um, these are titles from uh, W.S. Merwin's poems. So that was an, another random restriction I put on myself. So um, this one's called To Ashes. How many ashes do I walk through in one day? I have forgotten where my mother's ashes are. I think they are flushed into the earth. Yesterday, the crow gave me an invoice for its signaling of death. I owe one whole year. And this one's called Avoiding News by the River. It's only three lines. All the announcements, the mayflies land on a leaf. No one there ever looks up. And they're all varying, like varying patterns, but very distinct patterns. And I explain it in the back of the, the manuscript. And so when you say distinct patterns, because almost the second one definitely felt, uh, sounded like a form to me, uh -huh. are each of them, because you said you also researched a lot after enjoying the Tonka and what were these, were these forms? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There are ones that no one else really writes. And so, um, you know, some of them were just different patterns in different syllables. So I just, I took notes, I wrote them all down and I did a little research and, and I, um, and I really wanted to, as an exercise to not write about anything. So that was really important to me is to not, um, you know, not write about my mother's death or her illness or my father's stroke and his, you know, whatever's, because I've been writing about my father for 12 years and I'm just done, 
you know, I'm kind of over it. And so, <laughs> um, so yeah, I just wanted to kind of get out of my own way. And I just didn't want, uh, I didn't want the poems to be about anything preconceived. If, if one could even say things, I mean, to say that I kind of sound like my own critics, right? I mean, nothing is preconceived. It's my life. There's nothing I could do about it. And so, um, but I didn't want it to be so primary. Um, and so for me, uh, using someone else's titles and also using various syllabic forms is a way to kind of get me distracted, if that makes sense. Yeah, it completely does. Victoria, can you remember the the names for the syllabic patterns for each of those two? Or, or did they not even have names? They were just... Yeah, those two, um, I'd have to count the syllables because they're scattered throughout. Um see because I guess I'm just curious to hear some of the names of the other forms that you had found and that you yeah. that you've been working with the short one is uh, five seven seven so instead of a tanka which is five seven five it's five seven seven which is called a katauta k-a-t-a-u-t-a and then the other one is longer so the other one I think was a choka yeah, and it could be a choka can be indefinite. It's five seven five seven five seven five seven. It could go forever, and then you just have to land on seven seven. So for me, nine felt like the right number. Don't ask me why, because I never really think about anything. Like if anything, I think I'm very very organic, which is odd because all my books feel sort of like they were like it feels the other way. But um, they're very inductive. I start from the bottom, you know, so I, I don't really plan anything. But I think nine felt like the right, nine felt like the right number of lines. Yeah. <laughs> line and yeah. if it was another year, it might be another number. Another, another hour, really, you know. I'm all over the place, so I'm always happy to try new things, which, which again, it drives people crazy. I always say this, that everyone around me is driven insane by all my new ideas. <laughs> But I don't know. I don't know how to be a different person. If I could, I would, because I think it's easier to be a little more focused, I would say. I'm not focused at all. I understand. I love it. Don't change, Victoria. Don't change. And so also another question about these before we talk about something else to W.S. Merwin. Why, why did you decide to use Merwin and his titles? Was it because he had recently passed away or was it a book of his that you loved fellow Copper Canyon press poet or yeah yeah you know I've thought about that because I thought I thought like gosh when this book comes out people are going to ask me that question and I thought I've thought about this I, I actually think something really it's fate I really think I would not have read Merwin's poems so seriously if I were not with Copper Canyon press that's as simple as that. You know, if I were at, at, at another press, you know, um, I wouldn't have necessarily received all the latest Copper Canyon books. And I have, I mean, I have so many Merwin books. It's, I have so many Merwin books and I ha did not purchase a single one. And so they are just all sent to me as part of X, Y, or Z, or you donate this and you get a book. And I just have a lot of Merwin. And, and, and I, I don't think I would read as much Merwin as I, as I do if I were not with Copper Canyon Press. And it's another example of just random collisions, which may take your life into a different direction than they normally would have. Because I wouldn't say that Merwin was necessarily someone that appealed to me 
before I was at Copper Canyon Press, to be honest. Um, it wasn't my kind of writing. I like, you know, I liked writing that was a little louder, um, that maybe, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I've always very, been very interested in maybe a different kind of writer. And so um, the thing that interested me about Merwin always is the lack of punctuation. And I thought, I've always thought formally that was kind of interesting. But then after a while, it got to be, you know, when I was reading the poems, it, it could it could be kind of annoying, you know. Um, but now that I'm used to it, I really love it. And I think it, it was a great, uh, and, and that's a great example of someone not changing their style either. And so one could argue that Merwin didn't write sort of project books, but well, sure he did. I mean, his, his entire life was one big project of no punctuation, which is a form a formal decision that he made. So... Um, but yeah, I, I really think that that is it. And so I happen to notice those titles and how Merwin just sort of takes on larger um, takes on larger issues and things with um, his titles and in his poems, and that don't uh, that sort of lend themselves to existentialism and larger sort of things. And so I think in that way. Um, Using them was, it made a lot of sense when, because, and plus they're, the book's always, always lying around. And so I, I do think there's a randomness about it, you know. Right. There is a random, randomness to making. Oh, yeah. Even if you're doing something, you mentioned, quote unquote, terrible visual art or something. But like if you're collaging, you're pulling things together and yeah. often drive something that still needs to be said or things you know colliding with each other that need to collide and let's let's talk about your the hybrid book that you're working on too victoria because it sounds like these are things that you're immersed in right now yeah, going back definitely. and forth so are you are you doing drawings or sketches or how how is this working with the the essays you know there it's actually so the title of the the the, the manuscript and um, is called uh, Dear Memory, and the titles change like twenty times. So this is the title that just landed on. Finally decided, Dear Memory: Letters on Writing, Silence, and Grief. So it's these are hybrid things in epistolary form, and um, in between the epistolaries are just a bunch of random visual things that I did. <laughs> so. Uh, it's hard to explain, really. I mean, I took a lot of drawing classes growing up, but I'm hardly an artist. So um, I kind of messed around with with uh, using type and letters and moving things around on the page and um, with just you know t a, a computer. But then it just didn't work. It just I just I couldn't get things to look right. And I you know finally I just said you know I just I think I need to use my hands. And yeah. so once I made the decision to use my hands, um, then I started and I talked, I consulted, actually, I, I, I reached out in desper desperation to um, one of my visual art and poetry friends, Monica Ong Reed, who um, I met in New York when we were doing an Asian American Writers Workshop event together. And just out of desperation, I reached out to her and said, I need your help. Um, I need you to help me. I just need your help. I need someone to talk to about this. And, you know, and so she really was instrumental in getting me to, to do a better job. Like she critiqued some of the ones that I had made. And so it says photos and just, it's just, I'm not sure what it is. It's like, I'm actually mortified it's coming out this year because 
I just think people are going to think I'm crazy. And so, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, but it's fine. I mean, I, as a writer, I'm, I'm very much interested in the project of process. So uh, to me, it doesn't matter how, how the work is received. But I, I, I just, you know, it just, it is, I would like people to see the process of making and whether it turns out to work out well or not. It doesn't, you know, it is what it is, if that makes sense. It does. And and you chose to do, or did you, I don't know, when you were doing this, starting this hybrid project, probably not necessarily knowing it was going to be some a hybrid project, right? <laughs> no. um, but but did, it, did the letters start happen, happening? Did the epistolary form sort of drop into things, into the space, and that became the other vehicle? Yeah, you know, if I, if I were to think back on this and, and it's fascinating it's like this is good practice because if, if I get asked these questions later I'll have maybe thought through them but I think I just you know after my mom died um, I had to start cleaning a lot of stuff and so um, and she was a hoarder so she kept everything from as long as you know and, and I, I just had suddenly discovered all these amazing archival materials, right? But they're my mother's things in boxes and started looking through them. And wow, the things I discovered were all sort of secrets and things I didn't even know about, you know, related to my mom. And I realized that I never really got to ask questions and where and, and where my mother was from and why she did this. And, and you know, she had left China, I don't even know what age, eight or nine, seven, eight, nine, and then um, during the war, but why did she leave? And then she landed in Taiwan, um, and then she left Taiwan when she was in her maybe 20s. And then what, you know, I didn't know any of the stories, but then I um, I started finding all these archival materials. And so I started using, I, I, maybe as a way to talk to the uh, my mother and then the archival materials became a part of that manuscript and then suddenly I remembered I actually did interview my mother maybe uh maybe a year before my dad had a stroke and um I don't know why I suddenly remembered that I had done this uh and but it took me a couple of years to find the recording but I had asked her all these questions because I lied and I said hey I'm working on this um essay or something or uh and she was really reluctant but wow when I found it I was like there you go. I just found my gold treasure because what a gift. What a gift. I couldn't remember my and I sent it to my sister. She she wanted to hear it and uh but yeah, I was it's like you know, why did you leave? Like the memories and and so a lot of some of the images in the the document are her are transcriptions of our conversation as well. Oh wow. Oh, so the text as art. Mhm. Mm -hmm. with images and pictures, photos, you know, stuff I make. It's just, it really is a hot mess. I actually think like a real visual artist is going to look at this book and and say, what a hot mess. And I actually think that poets are going to look at it like, what the hell is this? I think prose writers are going to say, what the hell is this? Like, <laughs> it's all over the place. It's, you know, but I'm very comfortable with like disorganization and disjunction and things and not having very clean threads between things. But I just don't think anyone else will be. So <laughs> I, I anticipate that criticism and I'm totally fine with it because I refuse to change it in any way because that was a part of the process. But, you know, I think as a writer, you just have to have conviction for you can't be chasing likes, if that makes sense. You can't be chasing 
um, five stars on Goodreads. Like you just, <laughs> that's not a part of the artistic process or the creation. And so even if I know that something's not necessarily going to be well received in certain ways, I, I stick to, I stick to it. You know, I stick to the, the integrity of whatever it is that, that happened. Yeah. You won't be stopped. You won't be stopped, damn it, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and I don't think that that's going to happen, Victoria. Like, do oh, not, it will. Do not it will. worry. <laughs> and, and I think that you should put as a subtitle, you know, what the hell is this? <laughs> what the hell is this? Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, and, and I didn't, you know, I don't, I still don't know. But during the process, I certainly didn't know. And I just want to tell you in the in the last 10 minutes, ketchup has come in and out of this room seven times and I keep having to get up and and, and and pushing him out because the door doesn't have a handle on it right now because they're painting the door and so he keeps walking in here so he's figured out that he can just walk in and I'm gonna kick him out again hold on <laughs> Go. he wants to be part of it he's so smart the dog is so smart he's like oh I can just push the door open now Normally, I can't. Normally, it doesn't open. <laughs> he could be part of it. Just bring him into the, yeah, he can be part of the conversation. I'm sure he'll be back. It's like, I keep having to, I'm like, just, oh. but I'm also proud of him because I'm like, oh, he's so smart. He figured it out. <laughs> he is. And he wants to be, he wants to see what's happening. What's he does. He's very social. He's the social butterfly, so. Victoria, you know what? Uh, could we, could, would you mind? Let's, let's go back to Obit before we say goodbye. Cause, uh, would, would you mind reading, um, another poem or, or two sure. from Obit? Maybe. Sure. Um, I will read, uh, I'll read this one. It's a little shorter. Grief. Grief as I knew it died many times. It died trying to reunite with other lesser deaths. Each morning I lay out my children's clothing to cover their grief. The grief remains but is changed by what it is covered with. A picture of oblivion is not the same as oblivion. My grief is not the same as my pain. My mother was a mathematician so I tried to calculate my grief. My father was an engineer, so I tried to build a box around my grief, along with a small wooden bed that grief could lie down on. The text kept interrupting my grief, forcing me to speak about nothing. If you cut out a rectangle of a perfectly blue sky, no clouds, no wind, no birds, frame it with a blue frame, place it face up on the floor of an empty museum with an open atrium to the sky, that is grief. Victoria, thanks for choosing to read that one. I love that one. Oh, thank you. I kind of like it too. <laughs> if we're allowed to say poems that we like, I kind of like that one. <laughs> I'm so glad you read it. I'm so glad. Do you, yeah, like with these poems, some of them, it's not that you you don't like them, but right? It's just, but you have a different feeling for them. Is it even possible to talk about that? Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's fine not to like, I mean, like I said about that other hybrid book, it's like, I'm not sure I like the whole book, but <laughs> it's a process of creation that's important. And for me, the process is so important that um, 
if someone's willing to share it with the world, you know, if someone's willing to put it out there, I'm happy to show people the process of, of making. And if, and if it's not well received, that's fine because at least someone got to see my process, you know, um, and I got to document my process. And I think that's the same. That's true with the poems in Obit. I think that I like some of them and some of them I don't like, and I'm okay with that. Um, you know, I took a whole bunch out too. And, uh, but not a ton, you know, actually I didn't take a ton out. I took just maybe a handful out, maybe three or four or five, that kind of thing. I'm not even sure. Um, some of them just didn't make it in, but I kind of also, I think kept as many in as I could because I wanted to show the process of grieving. And I think for me, writing through these was a process of, of grieving. So they're not all perfect. They're not all great. And some of them, you know, are just not as strong in some ways, but that's okay too, because I mean, what, like perfection is overrated, I think. Um, and for, for me, it's again, to show that process is more important than to show perfection because who, who's perfect anyway. And I think with grief, how could there be a perfect it's impossible, grief, right? No. And everyone's grieving process is unique. And, you know, mine was very fragmented as you could see, um, little bits and pieces are, are, con we're constantly and are constantly, uh, dying. And I think that, that, um, that's, un you know, that that's unusual and that's usual. Like it just, everyone's situation is, is different. I'm always amazed when someone tells me their their mother is 97 or something i'm like wow that's so cool you know but there are different situations that come up with something like that as well yeah victoria talking about the grief and i don't even know if capturing is the right way to phrase it but documenting or yeah with well, it yeah documenting well this experience because I feel like a bit is a very experiential book like to be in this is to connect and have an understanding not only of your grief but the your own I think um, mm -hmm. as a reader right and so having these fragments in here is a way more people can I don't know it's more it's more authentic definitely yeah. and more can map onto it because there's more places for more people i think that's true i think i love that they get that ex, that word experiential and i think that you know math the poet matthew zapruder actually just said to me recently that i can't get out of my mind he said oh victoria you know what you do with your poems is that you show your thinking and then i was like oh yeah that's like that sounds like showing like your, your work in a math problem, you know, it's like when the math teachers, I was like, show your work, show your work, you know, because if you didn't show your work, it means you used a calculator or you cheated or something. But, um, but when he said you show your thinking, I couldn't stop thinking about that. I was like, Oh, my God, I totally show my thinking. <gasps> I'm a total process person. Like I show all of my steps along the way and all of the ways that I grapple with things in my mind and go back and forth and this way and that way. And, um, and I, I'd never really thought about it before. And I think other people oftentimes are better observers about oneself than oneself is, if that makes sense. But he just said that to me maybe like a week ago. And I was like, Oh, yeah, I totally show my work, <laughs> show my thinking is what he said. So I thought that's really smart. I agree with that. Well done, Matthew Zapruder. That's right. <laughs> Another Copper Canyon press poet. That's true, right? It's like, oh, there's ketchup. Stop whining. 
And on that note, we'll end today's conversation with Victoria Chang. Um, It was great to have a cameo um, from her dog, Ketchup, too. I'm T. Hetzel. You've been listening to Living Writers. Until next time. Hello, welcome to the Daily Sports Report. Uh, This is 88.3 FM Ann Arbor. Thank you for tuning in uh, today on Wednesday, December 10th. Or what did I say? Uh, Wednesday, February 10th. (laughs) I'm looking outside, seeing all this snow and uh, subconsciously thinking of December. Uh, But I am joined by Stevie McGregor. Probably just going to be the two of us this evening. But how are you doing tonight, Stevie? You know, I'm I'm doing fine. You know, excited after the, watching the Super Bowl and sad that f- football's gone. But I mean, football rumor season isn't go- is just heating up now. So excited. Exactly. To <laughs> so uh, we have um, not a ton to discuss, but we have some fun topics, especially uh, for me as a Tom Brady fan. And I hope I hope many of the listeners are Tom Brady fans too. Like. The residents of Ann Arbor have been following him for longer than probably anyone besides residents of uh, his small town in California where he uh, went to high school. But uh, he's he's a Michigan-bred man, and now he's the greatest of all time, uh, not even close. So I guess mm-hmm. the first thing we're going to talk about tonight is um, the – a key matchup going into the game was like the established uh, quarterback of the past two decades and a supposed upcoming legend uh, in Patrick Mahomes. And it was a really high build matchup. And, and unfortunately it fell pretty flat. It was almost completely one-sided. Don't get me wrong. Mahomes had some really good throws, but he was just unable to com- uh, complete or connect on them. And what I am wondering,